Hello, I'm Neil Ferguson, the Millbank Family Senior Fellow here at the Hoover Institution. And one of the things I do at Hoover is to chair the Hoover History Working Group. Uh, we've been very fortunate today to have as our guest at the Working Group seminar, my old friend, William Kirby, the Spangler Family Professor of Business Administration at Harvard Business School, and the T.M. Chang Professor of China Studies uh, at Harvard University. He's also a University Distinguished Service Professor. Uh, Bill's career at Harvard has been a storied one. He was Chair of the History Department, Director of the Harvard University Asia Center, Director of the Fairbank Center for Chinese Studies, and a Dean of the Faculty of Arts and Sciences, and therefore at one time my boss. Uh, he came to talk to us about his most recent book, Empires of Ideas, Creating the Modern University from Germany to America to China. Bill, welcome uh, to Hoover and to Stanford. Um, can I ask you just to define the modern university? I'm conscious that uh, you don't cover English or Scottish universities in the book. Is that because they're not modern universities? They become modern universities, Neil. But the, what we think of as the modern research university, universities, I should take a step back. Universities are, of course, more than a millennium old. But the modern research university really begins in the early 19th century in one place, in Berlin, and with the founding of the University of Berlin, with a sense of that it is the purpose of a university not simply to educate people in the professions, but to create knowledge, to create, to be part of a scientific century. Uh, to faculty are not simply there to pass on knowledge to another generation, uh, but to do active research in addition to teaching and to do so in a partnership with students, either in a seminar or an laboratory format to advance knowledge. And a research university as established in the University of Berlin in, in, in 1810 was to also, even if funded by the state, to have considerable autonomy from the state, set its own priorities. Uh, it is to have at its center, what we would call today, the Faculty of Arts and Sciences, what they call then the philosophical faculty. And above all, it would be an institution in which there was freedom to teach, Lehrfreiheit on the part of the faculty, and freedom to learn across disciplines, Lernfreiheit on the part of students. We take all of this for granted today uh, in great institutions like Stanford, uh, but it was actually quite revolutionary in the 19th century. And the great British universities, already great in many, many distinct ways, become great research universities by importing certain aspects of a German model while re retaining the extraordinary ethos of uh, close encounter teaching and mentorship that has distinguished the Oxbridge colleges uh, for many centuries well before this period in time. The American universities such as mine, Harvard, become, you know, move from being a pale imitation of British undergraduate colleges to being serious research centers by bringing wholesale the German model to apply in the United States. So the theme of your book is that the baton is sort of passed. First, it's the German universities that developed the, the concept of a research 
university and they reach their zenith in what the late 19th century when they're clearly the preeminent universities in the world but then things go wrong in Germany and the baton is passed to the United States and it's in the 20th century the United States that really uh establishes dominance in higher education and I think I infer from your book that there is at least some chance that the baton is going to be passed on to to Chinese universities in the 21st century. Is that the right way to think about the book? It is the right way to think about it. The question is, if the Americans could surpass the Germans in part by emulating them, but also adding very distinctive qualities to the modern university, uh, what are the prospects for Chinese leadership in the 21st century? Because there is no nation that has a greater set of ambition in higher education today than China. No nation has a greater capacity to devote resources in higher education than China today. And no nation has at its disposal a larger number of, of extraordinary, what shall we put, human, larger percentage of the world's extraordinary human capital, both in China and in terms of overseas Chinese, to apply to this project. Um, it is, whether it happens or not, whether there is a kind of a question of you know, leadership is a comparative thing. Uh, what, whether the Chinese, whether Chinese universities will come to be the leader, leading research universities in the world will depend a lot on what happens here in the United States. At the moment, higher education is one industry in which the United States is still number one. Let me ask you what the lessons are of the German experience, because the downfall of the German universities is actually one of the most remarkable stories of 20th century educational history. They, they are dominant in the 1920s still. They're the Nobel Prize winning institutions. And there's a catastrophic fall. Do you think of that as being essentially the result of exogenous pressures from uh, the German polity, i.e. Hitler comes to power, and that means it's curtains for the German research university? Or is there some sense in which the German universities are the architects of their own downfall? That's an excellent question. I would say that, of course, the approximate cause is the rise of Hitler, uh, the purging of Jews, uh, the purging of uh, non-national socialists from the university faculty in many cases, then the destruction of the university physically during the war, and the fact that the university then comes under communist control in East Berlin uh, and ceases to be a leader among global universities, without question, even though physically rebuilt. But you could argue that the seeds of stagnation are absolutely there. Uh, if you look at the highly constrained nature of who become, who can become a professor at the University of Berlin or at other German universities, it's a politically highly conservative and, uh, and, and uh, group um, monarchist before 1914, but still with monarchical tendencies in the Weimar and uh, through to into the beginning of the National Socialist period. And above all, a place that ceases to innovate uh, in terms of what both education and research can be in many areas. There's so much interaction between China, I'm sorry, there is so much interaction between Germany and the United States, mostly by Americans taking on lessons from the Germans, but very little appetite, some, but not much, very little appetite from the German side to begin to see 
what is happening in the rest of the world in which we might from which we might learn they have i would put it this way they have a bit of what uh, the former president of duke says is a weakness of some of the great private universities in this country they had certainly by the 1930s what i would call the inertia of excellence things they're so good they're no longer first and foremost and now, that's a danger for american universities today that's exactly what i was going to ask you and i don't want to uh, draw you into commenting specifically on on Harvard, uh, but but let's talk generally about the elite American universities. Are there some of the seeds of of complacency and and stagnation there? And you mentioned the political leaning to the right of the German universities. It seems like we have a mirror image here, where American universities are becoming more and more a political monoculture of the left, and that can't be healthy either. But is that the kind of thing that you're concerned about? Well, the the fact that the universities lean one way or another it's an, it's an it's a very interesting point because that is to say, in the in the German experience, a a very conservative professoriate. Uh, under a social democratic government, for example, in the Weimar period, is not a um, not a recipe for cooperation. And in the United States today, uh, it is certainly widely believed that the American professoriate, at least at leading elite universities, is very much more liberal uh, than the general population is. And yet, in the case of public universities, supported by the taxpayers of these states. There has been a over time a great public um, di disinvestment in public higher education, not only monetarily but also culturally, in which uh, the level of pride that the citizens of a state might take in their state university is much less today than it would have been 20, 30, or 40 years ago. There, there is almost surely some political element to that. There's also the usual American uh, aversity to uh, paying taxes for anything. Uh, that is that is part of that. But I, I do, yeah, go ahead, please. We're talking just days after extraordinary scenes in some of the major Chinese universities, scenes of protest, uh, not just against COVID restrictions, against the zero COVID policy, but protests against the Chinese Communist Party, uh, the Chinese leader Xi Jinping. Uh, these are universities you know very well. I know not quite so well, but certainly know. I've been astonished by some of the video clips I've seen from at Tsinghua, where I was a visiting professor uh, for five years. Uh, so let's talk about the contemporary moment in Chinese universities. How do you interpret what's happening? And is it going to be just yet another showdown between the Chinese state and the somewhat unruly universities? And could that showdown jeopardize the Chinese universities' ambitions to be the leaders of the 21st century? It absolutely could jeopardize their leadership capacity if it leads to a, an even greater intellectual clampdown uh, on these centers of excellence. But Chinese universities are incubators of the next generation of Chinese leaders. Xi Jinping himself, after all, is a graduate of Tsinghua University during the Cultural Revolution. Um, Hu Jintao, his predecessor, uh, also a graduate of Tsinghua University. Li Keqiang, the current premier, a graduate of Peking University. 
And these university students and university students in modern China as the successors of the scholar elite uh, that once uh, filled the bureaucracy of imperial China, university students have periodically taken on the role, self-selected role, but an accepted role in society as the conscience of the nation. Uh, they, uh, it was leading scholars that urged the Qing dynasty to reform in the great reform and failed reform effort of 1898. Uh, it was university students from Peking University that demonstrated in the famous May 4th, 1919 demonstrations. And of course, most famously for people uh, who will be watching this today, it was university students who began the largest uh, set of political demonstrations in world history in Beijing in the spring of 1989 uh, in Tiananmen Square. And it is, a, it is a role that students embrace when they feel they have the opportunity to do so. So it's that rare moment in time when people can actually think, at least they can say what they think. That people can say what they think uh, and we can hear what they think. But what they're saying is in some ways even more extraordinary than some of what I have heard before. This is on the streets of Shanghai, not so much in, 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 in Peking University or Tsinghua, to my knowledge. But people are saying things today, you know, that were never said about Mao Zedong or Deng Xiaoping. You know, the Communist Party should it should step down. Xi Jinping should step down personally. Uh, these are extraordinary statements that will be shared and the videos of which have been shared on WeChat all over China. The impact of this will be impossible to gauge in coming days, weeks, or even months. The capacity of the state to suppress is much greater than it was in 1989. And yet you finally get a chance to see what people are actually thinking. And not just people, but the leaders of the next generation, including leaders of the next generation of the Chinese Communist Party should it survive into another generation. Would have anybody wondered why you decided to write uh, a history of American, German and, and Chinese universities, uh, then I don't think the question needs to be asked anymore. Uh, uh, Bill, it's enormously helpful to, to set these contemporary events in the historical perspective that your book provides. Once again, the book is Empires of Ideas, Creating the Modern University from Germany to America to China. It's a, a Belknap Press uh, publication. Uh, we've enjoyed very much having uh, you here, your second uh, visit uh, this year to the Hoover Institution. And uh, we wish you every success uh, with the book. And we'll see whether the Chinese universities really do inherit this uh, strange role of, uh, of leadership in, in global higher education whether in fact this latest crisis is going to set them back and give the American universities some some uh, breathing space. Bill Kobe, thank you very much. Thank you very much, Neil. Take care. <laughs>